I mean, if you haven't seen Julia Child auto-tune remixed, you haven't lived. So now you've lived. Uh, well, here's who, this is who I think of with Lady Wisdom. Uh, if you don't know much of Julia Child, uh, I think before the movie Julia, Julie and Julia came out, I just kind of heard of her name, but I didn't really know her like my parents' generation did and grew up watching her on TV. But uh, yeah, just a little bit about her. Uh, after World War II, she and her husband, Paul, he was former military, and he was in the American Foreign Service, and they moved to France in this, town, in this French city of Rouen. And her first meal when she moved to France was, she, was, she later told a magazine, her first meal uh, was oysters, sole monier, which is some fish dish, and some fine French wine. And she said that this meal was an opening up of the soul and spirit for me. So this lady, this American woman who had no cooking or culinary background at all, then forced her way into this prestigious French cooking school. And then she became, after that, internationally renowned for her TV show, and more importantly, her book that she wrote. Does anybody know the title of this book? Yeah. Mastering the Art of French Cooking. You're real close. Yeah, right there. Uh, she says in the foreword to this book that anyone can cook in the French manner, anywhere, with the right instruction. Uh, it's kind of like Chef Gusteau in uh, Ratatouille, right, where his title of his book is Anyone Can Cook, right? She was unsatisfied with the idea that you had to go to this prestigious French cooking school, and then even then, you probably couldn't even force your way into a, a nice restaurant. Uh, but she thought that anyone could cook, Anyone could experience this great, great food, no matter if you're from New York or New Mexico or Paris or Placitas, right? Anyone can cook. You can learn. You can leave your pizza rolls and corn dog bites at home and experience some beef bourguignon and sole monnier, right? So here's Lady Wisdom. Suppose it could be her right and Julia Child's right to figure out all this stuff and then just stay in their houses and maybe just cook for their husbands and family, right? But they were unsatisfied with that. They want to teach, to inspire, to satisfy you. And so Lady Wisdom, back on stage, she approaches our main character and she invites him in. She tells him the party is actually for him Come in and be satisfied. Leave your corn dog bites behind and come inside. So we see him take a step towards the house and he kind of recoils steps. He's thinking, should I go in or should I not? And the curtain falls, the end of Act One. We don't see whether he goes in or not, kind of like we didn't see at the end of the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons if the older son actually goes into the party. We're meant to identify with him. Would I go in or would I not if I was on stage? So, it's intermission. You guys have been to the theater before. You know you go out into the lobby, uh, maybe buy a little snack, maybe a box of Junior Mint, maybe a little Coke in a glass bottle. Uh, and you, there, Solomon and his son Rehoboam are out there talking. Uh, Solomon takes his boy, grabs him in, Puts his arm around his shoulder. He says, what do you think of the play? He's like, oh, I don't know. And uh, he's like, you know what I think, Rehoboam? You know what I think? Verse 7. 
his arm around him. He says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Well, that kind of seems out of the blue. Why does he say that? Why does he, why does he tell Rehoboam this at intermission? Why doesn't he just say, hey, would you go in or would you not? What he's saying, I think, is he's saying, hey, listen, if you were that guy, if you were on stage, would you go in? Would you go and take this free offer of an amazing meal, or would you scoff at it? Like, nah, it's not really my thing. Corn dog bites are my thing, right? Will you scoff at it, or will you come into this amazingly generous and free offer? And then he says, will you fear the Lord and recognize that you are not the end of all wisdom, or will you humble yourself and seek wisdom? Will you not only seek wisdom, but look at the second part of chapter 10, or verse 10. Will you seek the Holy One? Will you seek God? Finally, he says, if you are wise, this is verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. What's he saying here? He's saying, Bo, Rehoboam, you got to decide for yourself, brother. You can't borrow wisdom from me. I'm the smartest king, the wisest king who's ever lived, right? But just because I'm that wise doesn't mean that you are. You can't borrow this wisdom from me. You have to have it for yourself. You can't just because, you know, we just finished building that temple we've been working so hard on for so many years, just because that's built now and you can go, like, sacrifice and worship there, it doesn't mean a thing if you don't personally and individually fear the Lord. If you don't personally and individually love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So he says, get wisdom. Get it for yourself. Even if your friends aren't. Even if your brothers aren't. You're responsible. You're accountable. And as he's saying this, he still has his arm around him. Rehoboam's just kind of like, meh. Not really listening. And the lights flash in the lobby. A few soft dings go off to signal them to go back into the theater. And they sit down just in time for the lights to go down and the curtain to come up for Act 2. And again, we see our main character walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And he stops again right before rounding a corner. But this time... He doesn't stop to smell, he stops to listen. And we hear this like, just gross, nasty voice. Whenever I think of this voice, I think of the old hag in uh, Princess Buttercup's dream in The Princess Bride. Boo! Boo! Bow to her! Bow to the queen of filth! The queen of muck! Right? This kind of voice. So we hear this voice... But we're surprised to see when he rounds the corner, it's not an old hag, 
It's like this sultry seductress, but yet it still sounds gross. Let's, the narrator comes out, and he tells us this woman is folly. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So she sits outside of her house yelling at those who were attempting to walk on the straight path. So we find out he wasn't like going out and looking for her. He's just walking around and he stumbles upon her and she calls him in. She says in this gross voice, Whoever simple, let him turn in here. Right? She's gross. But have we heard that? Have, have you, do you guys know of another place in the Bible where we've heard what she says? Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. I'll give you a hint. You probably heard it like five minutes ago. Yeah, Dory? Yeah, Lady Wisdom says the exact same thing. So it may be that Lady Folly is like mocking Lady Wisdom, but it may just be that she's saying the same thing because it's kind of hard to distinguish what's wise and what's folly. She's trying to make it difficult for us to discern which is right. She's saying the exact same thing. And then she says, verse 17, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Why does she say that? Why is stolen water sweet? Well, first of all, she is offering something to eat and drink, right? Because we probably can anticipate he's probably hungry. So maybe even if he's hungry, even water and bread is satisfying. But while he may not be able to see it, we can kind of laugh at her invitation of bread and water. Why might her invitation of bread and water be funny? Or kind of just like silly. Yeah? Like the stuff that Julia Child was making. Like steaks and amazing like chocolate raspberry desserts and beef bourguignon and sole monier, right? And she's offering what maybe is moldy bread and like lukewarm tepid water. Silly for him to go in. Uh, but second, this stolen water bit. Have you guys heard of St. Augustine or Augustine? Right? You might know him from the grass name or a city in Florida. right? But he was a guy in the 300s, uh, the late 300s, and he wrote this book about his life, kind of about his childhood, how he came to faith in Christ. And it's a book called his confessions. And so he writes in this book, this is, this is, he's telling a story about his childhood. He says, There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or for its flavor. Late one night, 
having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as our bad habit was, a couple of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs, after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou didst pity even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee what I was seeking there, what I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own doing, my own undoing. I loved my error, not that for which I erred, but the error itself. He's saying that he didn't really, he didn't really care about the pears, right? The pears aren't what was satisfying. They, in fact, just went and gave the pears to the pigs. He loved stealing and robbing from this pear tree just because it was forbidden, just because it was like against the rules. And aren't we like that sometimes? Aren't we, isn't the allure of sin so enticing sometimes just because it's against the rules? Like we want to sneak out of the house one night or something just because it's against the rules. The idea of like drinking or smoking or something is like enticing just because it's against the rules. Right? We, we want to watch something that we shouldn't watch sometime because it's against the rules. Girls oftentimes want to date the bad guy. Like, this doesn't make sense, but he's like, he's like pushing the boundaries, so I, I'm kind of attracted to that because it's against the rules, right? Well, she's saying the same thing. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She's got another hook that she knows will get us, that she knows will get our main character into her house. She's got plenty of hooks. She's seductive. She calls out to those who are kind of unassuming and unprepared for her. She calls using the same call as Lady Wisdom, making it hard to distinguish which is right. She, offers, she actually offers something to eat to those who are hungry, and she offers evil because she knows that he'll like it. She knows what she is doing. She is very calculating and knows what she's doing. But then we find out the reason for which she's doing this, right? We get to see why she's doing it. It's like on stage, uh, her house, her wall, is like perpendicular to us, and she's sitting outside, and our main character is coming up, approaching the front of the stage, and he's trying to figure out whether he should go in or not, but what the audience can see is in her house, in this back closet, is just a pile of skeletons and corpses. And we can see it, but our main character can't. While Lady Wisdom was inviting him in to come in and be satisfied, the reason she was inviting him in was to kill him. Right? She was going to offer him a little bite of bread, a little swallow of lukewarm, tepid water, that would ultimately unsatisfy him. And then once she got him in, killed him. Right? So this is why we see, or this is, we see that this is why she's bringing him in. And so, like at the end of Act 1, we see our main character take a step toward the house, step back, and we see him thinking about whether he should go in or not, and the curtain falls. And Solomon and Rehoboam, get up and they leave with the rest of the audience and they're walking 
through the streets of Jerusalem back to the palace. And Solomon again puts his arm around his boy and says, So what'd you think, Bo? He says, uh, I don't know. It's like, do you, so do you think he went into Folly's house? I, I don't know. He says, you, know, you want to know what I think, Bo? Sure. I think he went in. You want to know why? I don't know. Uh, well, I think he went in because the only reason he's still out on the street walking around is because he's not in Lady Wisdom's house at her party made for him. Because once Wisdom made him an offer, he's no longer simple and naive. Once he rejects her offer, he's not just naive about who Wisdom is. He's heard her offer, and now he's scoffingly rejecting her offer. And once he scoffingly rejects her offer, he's on his way to Folly's house. And while he wasn't necessarily looking for Folly's house, he's on the road because he left Wisdom's house. He says, Bo, you, you can't stay indifferent to Wisdom. You've got to choose. And when that guy on stage didn't choose Wisdom, he chose Folly. He chose death. And while we didn't see him, now he's a rotting corpse in the back closet. So listen up, Bo. Uh, at school on Monday morning, we're going to start, I'm going to start teaching you some of my wisdom, some of my proverbs. I'm going to start teaching you this. And if you listen to them, then you'll be satisfied. You'll live a long and satisfied life knowing which way the winds are coming from and what to do with them. But if you do not listen to what I'm going to start teaching you on Monday morning, you're going to end up a rotting corpse, living an unfulfilled, unsatisfied, empty life. A life of moldy bread and lukewarm water. So I want you to listen. I want you to want this. So that's a pretty good story. If we just had the book of Proverbs, that's a pretty good story. But our epilogue is really sad. The good news is that we have the rest of the story of Solomon's life in the book of First Kings. You got that? Turn over a couple books. If you hit the Samuels, you've gone too far. First Kings. Chapter 11. We, we looked at 1 Kings last week, remembering that in chapter 3, uh, God came to Solomon and asked him, whatever you want, I'll give you. And instead of asking for power or a great kingdom or women or whatever, he asked for wisdom. And so God gave him wisdom and then accordingly gave him all of those things as well. But, did I say chapter 10? We're in chapter 11. Chapter 11 we find out what happens to Solomon. After he's written all these Proverbs, after he's taken Rehoboam to the play, this happens. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. 
Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Man. Here's the wisest man in this point in the human history, right? And his heart is still looking for other cups of sand. We talked about last week. Still, he's still looking for satisfaction. He gives so much advice to his boys about women and holiness and purity. And yet this, own, this wisdom doesn't settle into his own heart. And we see what happens to his boys in the second half of that chapter in, verse, in chapter 11. His son Jeroboam tries to lead a revolt and overthrow his own kingdom. And then we read about in chapter 12, Rehoboam, who was at our play, uh, commits one of the f- most foolish acts of any king in Israel's history. You can read about it. Perhaps your subtitle says, Rehoboam's Folly. He didn't get it. The, what's that? The next chapter, chapter 12. The kingdom, then after Solomon dies, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty sad death, it's just kind of, he dies with a whimper. Right? In the end of chapter 11, he just kind of dies and he's buried with his father. So that's all we got for the end of Solomon's life. After he dies, no, 1 Kings 11 and 12, right? Uh, after he dies, the kingdom is divided. Jeroboam takes the north. Rehoboam takes the south. And then from then on, the rest of the way in First and Second Kings, whenever we find a wicked king, uh, they describe their wickedness as walking in the way of Jeroboam or something like he didn't turn from the sin of Jeroboam. Solomon's boys didn't get it. So this sounds pretty hopeless, right? We've got the wisest king ever. He failed. His sons, sitting under his wisdom for their whole lives, they fail. So, should we just forget about all this stuff? Should we just say, hey, you know, we can try, but it's really no point. If they, if they didn't get it, then wisdom really is not going to do much for us. Well, this is why it's so important what we ended with last week about the heart being changed. Did you see how uh, over and over in that chapter, in that text that we just read in 1 Kings 11, that these women turned his heart from the Lord. And his heart was tempted towards idolatry of these idols, right? And so we can't make wisdom about making better decisions, about doing better things. Our hearts have to be changed first. Our desires must be changed first. We have to be convinced that Lady Wisdom isn't just about making better decisions, but we have to want, want 
want to be in her house, in her party, more than Lady Follies. So how do we want this? How, how does this happen? Well, in Matthew 12, Jesus is speaking, and he says, hey, you guys remember that Queen of Sheba that came to Solomon to hear his wisdom and how she was astounded by him? Well, here's, what, here's the thing. Something greater than Solomon is here. It's me. He is making a just incredibly audacious claim. He's saying the wisest man in our nation's history is nothing compared to me. I'm greater than him. And then, maybe equally audacious, the Lady Wisdom doesn't show up for the first time in chapter 9. She shows up for the first time in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 33, Lady Wisdom says, But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster. And in Matthew 7, Jesus basically rips her off, essentially word for word. And he says, But whoever listens to me will dwell in a house secure, like a house built on a rock. But if you do not listen to me, you'll be like a house built on the sand. Audacious. Not only is he saying that he is wiser than King Solomon, but he is Lady Wisdom. He's saying that just like Lady Wisdom, whether you either choose her or if you don't choose her, you choose folly. If you choose me, you choose security. If you don't choose me, you choose death. He's saying everyone is invited into this banquet of wisdom. Come in and be satisfied. But if you don't come in, you're already on the road to death. And then Lady Wisdom, again in Proverbs 9, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He says, I am the bread of heaven sent down for you. He says, be satisfied in me, in my bread, my life lived for you, to give you my righteousness, in my wine, my blood poured out for you to take away your sin. And when we receive this new life that he promises us to raise us up, he gives us a new heart, one that's beating of flesh that is alive to him, not a stony heart like Solomon and his boys. It's the beauty of living on this side of the cross, that we are on the new covenant that Christ initiates. But, Jesus says, you must believe and be satisfied personally, individually, just like Solomon told, his, told Rehoboam in intermission. He says you can't borrow belief from your parents. You can't borrow belief from your siblings or from your friends at church. You must personally and individually want this, love this, be satisfied in me. Even if your family and your friends and your brothers or sisters scoff at me, you're responsible. You're accountable. So believe. So, as we go thematically over some of the wisdom of Solomon over the next seven weeks, we cannot make 
the thing that we're talking about that week, like our tongue, what we say, or our decisions that we make, or our laziness, or whatever else, we cannot make that thing the ultimate thing. Like if we can just somehow control our tongue better, then God will be more pleased with us. That thing, whatever it is, our tongue, our decisions, our friendships, our conflicts, must first come from a changed heart. So, here's the deal. I'm asking and pleading with you, with Solomon and with Jesus, to believe. You cannot borrow belief from your parents or your siblings or your friends here. Believe. Recognize that God is holy and a good and perfect king and father to us, and yet we day by day and minute by minute will not sit under that goodness. We actively say, I will not sit under this, and we are satisfied by cups of sand. And say, but even still, God, though we are, like we sang this morning, though we are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Though we are prone to leave you and leave your free invitation of an amazing banquet and just walk straight over to this house of death. Even though we do this daily, God, you love us still, still, and you have sent your son to live and die for us. And I believe that, and I'm satisfied by that. So believe in this, and he will give you life. This is the offer. If you deny or scoff at this offer, you are on the road to death to become a rotting corpse in the back closet. So live. Come in and be satisfied with beef bourguignon. It's good. So let's break up, talk about some of this, talk about the gospel, and talk about wisdom and why we often don't want it. Let's do it.